kids here not going to uh, children's church. I just want to know, I didn't join for your And I just want to know, I heard the name Please take your copy of the Word of God and let's turn to the book of Esther. And we are in chapter 7. Uh, it's a short chapter, only 10 verses, packed full of good stuff. And I want us to see uh, what the Lord has for us here in this particular passage this morning. Esther chapter 7. I want to begin, however, uh, by explaining the map that was up there. Uh, ancient map makers, like the one that you saw up there, used to uh, write on their maps or draw pictures, here be dragons. Medieval cartographers, those who made maps, uh, sketched hic sunt dragonis. Hic sunt dragonis. Uh, translated, there be dragons, on the edges of their maps. And that's because they didn't have what we have. They didn't have global positioning, they didn't have satellites, they couldn't see things from outer space. Uh, somebody had to personally go out and figure out the outlay of the land and how, what it looks like and all that. But there were places nobody had been to, to do any uh, cartography and map those places out. On the edges of their maps then, they wrote, Here be dragons. Uh, those three words were used by medieval cartographers who, with the famed Linux globe uh, map, which is in 1503 to 1507, that's the one that I showed you the picture of up here uh, this morning. They used that to describe the outer boundaries where knowledge ended and speculation began about what was there. After drawing on all of his knowledge of the, the map maker, could only write those three provocative words to convey that these areas are at best unexplored and at worst perhaps perilous. Yet map makers of the area held on to another image. That image was one of Jesus Christ. For instance, the Psalter map that was made in 1250, uh, before, before 1250, was after, after Christ, so-called because it accompanied a, a copy of the book of the Psalms, featured dragons on the bottom as well as Jesus and the angels on top. Such a map reminds us of the availability of the true north, if you will, as followers of Christ. Yes, there are dragons, not the way they thought of them in that sense, but there are dragons. There is also Jesus in all reality and his angels in all reality, and we can follow him, and we can find our way. We will often face peril in this life in many forms, but also we never forget that beyond every unknown, and our world is filled with all kinds of unknowns right now, beyond every unknown, our God is already there, and he is at work. Whether our dragons trying to share the space or not, God is there and God is doing his work. Dr. Schmutzer, I like to quote him because I like to say his name, said this, Never should our confidence in God's ultimate victory dilute our own passionate involvement. In other words, we don't let the dragons on the outer edge of the things we don't know scare us away. And we, for, we don't forget that God is there and that his angels are there. And we also don't go back from getting, getting in a place where we can work for God and get his agenda done in our lives and in the world. God has chosen to involve us 
in the battle against the forces of evil. And I would like you to think of things this morning in terms of what are the forces of evil doing and what are the forces of evil, what is their goal in this world? He has chosen to let us choose to have courage or cowardice in these times. He has also encouraged us to be courageous based on faith in him, even if we don't know the future. If we are to stand against evil and wickedness, if we are to fight the good fight, we must be courageous without guarantee of the outcome. We must be courageous without having God to tell us and guarantee for us what is the outcome of what we are going to do for him. Outcome is God's business. Outcome is not our business. What I am laboring to say is this. If we are going to serve God and accomplish his will in our day, we must be courageous and do what God says. That is not without risk, perhaps it is not without pain. And today I want us to feel the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of believers in this evil world. Let's uh, read the text together this morning. I'm starting in uh, chapter 7 of Esther 1. <clears throat> Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther, on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, she means her and the rest of the nation, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do this thing? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. The king rose in his anger from drinking wine, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed behind to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now remember in those days they would have reclined on a flat couch, maybe with a rise on one end so they could put their arm on it. And so she's still at the table and she's still resting on that particular, she's resting on that couch. And so uh, the king walks back in and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they, which tells us there were other people in the room, like the king's eunuchs and others, who were always there, always guarding the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, we've met him before, one of the king's eunuchs, who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows, and I'm going to call that an impaling pole, 75 feet high, the gallows... Um, lost my place here. The gallows uh, standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 
which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. The king knows that because he just had a story about him the night before. He just made other people get Mordecai ready, and Haman had to lead him around the city and proclaim, this is what happens to a man that the king wants to honor. So it's all fresh in his mind. Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. Now the king is figuring out, my wife is a Jew, and Mordecai I knew was a Jew, and it was the Jews that Haman asked me to give him permission to kill, and it's all starting to make sense to him, and he's upset. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged, they impaled, and hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. I want to break that down and look at a few things a little bit more closely as we go through this. Boy, that's a lot of tension to leave, isn't it? This has been building up for a long time, but it's not over with, with the death of Haman because there is still a decree, a Persian decree that is in the land, and when there's a decree in Persia, it cannot be changed even by the king. So we haven't solved the entire problem yet, but it will be solved in this book. Right now we're getting rid of the guy that's the big ringleader of it all. In verses 1 to 6, what I want us to learn is that we must speak up and stand up against the operations of Satan. Now the issue here is these are people of God. And what the people of God are really concerned about is what's going on in the world that is evil and wicked and what's happening in the spiritual realm. So we are always looking for those things that are operations, plans of Satan, and those are the ones we want to stand against. Now why would a man want to kill an entire race of people? What is in Haman's heart that he wants to get rid of every Jew? I can understand that out of pride, which he was a very prideful man, and jealousy, because Mordecai would never bow down to him, Haman would go after Mordecai. I, I get that. I understand that. But why annihilate an entire nation of people? Why commit genocide against all of the Jews? Where does that come from? Why would he even be thinking that? And I want you to ask yourself the same question. Why would I be thinking that? Why, why wouldn't I just take care of the person that's causing the problem and leave the others alone? The answer is <clears throat> that this is not just a man's plan. This does not all rest completely on Haman's shoulders. This is a plan that was concocted and put together by someone else. This plan has that person's signature all over it. The answer is that it is not Haman's plan alone. It is being inspired by Satan. My nose decides to start running. Excuse me. I moved my Kleenex so I couldn't find it there. This is a plan that is inspired by Satan who is against God's people. Here's what Satan's thinking. I know Mashiach. I know Messiah, the anointed one, is coming. And if I'm going to get rid of him... I need to get rid of all of the Jews, and that way there can be no Messiah. So the plot about killing all the Jews and not just Mordecai, that is inspired satanically by the enemy. Get rid of the Jews, and then we don't have to worry about a Messiah. If Satan can eliminate that nation, he eliminates the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Haman is the instrument of his plan in those days. Now, obviously, Satan already knows that the Messiah has been here, that he uh, made atonement for our sins. He can't do anything about that, but he's still going to fight God. 
It has been an eventful morning for Haman. Remember this, last night he went home and as he was going home from the banquet, he walked past everybody, everybody's bowing down and treating him like he's the greatest thing on earth, except Mordecai, that rotten Jew, who will not bow, who will not give me the credit that is due me, and he is fuming. And he goes home and he tells Zeresh, his wife, and he tells his friends and his wise men, I've got everything a man could want, but I, I, I can't rest. I cannot have any peace. I can't enjoy my life until Haman is dead. And so they concoct a plan. And by the way, Satan's involved in that too, because he's about death and annihilation and killing and destroying. And the plan was, okay, here's what you do. First thing in the morning, you go see the king and you ask the king to put, let you put Mordecai to death. Then all that will be out of your system and you can enjoy the banquet and you can go there and you'll just enjoy your time with the king and queen and everything will be fine and you finally get everything that you wanted. And he gets up early in the morning, as you remember from last time, and he goes to the palace and he's ready to find out, you know, what the king says about his plan. He goes, and I can see him getting ready to open his mouth, but you don't talk before the king does. And the king says, I had a bad night last night. Couldn't sleep. And so out of a, out of a lot of volumes, they brought me a book and they read it. And it was the most recent things that have happened in my reign. And there was a man named Mordecai who saved my life from two of my doorkeepers. Now, he didn't tell all that to Haman. What he said to Haman was, how would I, as king of this great country, honor a person who I want to honor? And you remember, well, Haman, he's thinking, it's me, I'm the guy, I'm the guy. So he comes up with this elaborate plan. Well, he gets to wear a robe of the king. He rides on one of the king's stallions, for sure, and it's gonna have the royal crest and the royal crown on it. And one of your greatest nobles leads that person through the town, and he cries out, uh, this is what the king does to a man he wants to honor. So you can just see him get out of tie, but he's, you know, he's getting himself ready. This is me. He doesn't even get to get that uh, other stuff out of his mouth. And the king says, oh, uh, I like that. Go find Mordecai, the Jew, and do that for him. You do that for him. He is miserable. He goes home, talks to his friends again. And his friends utter a prophecy that came from God, even though they're pagans. And that prophecy we'll look at a little later is in verse 13 of chapter 6. What they see is that, Haman, you don't have the upper hand anymore. There is a power at work that's greater than you. And you're going to fall. And literally the text said, he will fall the fall. One of the greatest of all falls. That word it occurs many times in this book. It's one of the themes of the book. So it's been an eventful morning for Haman. He gets back, goes home, and uh, he's been out parading Mordecai around town, talking about how great he is. And uh, then he has to go to the banquet. There is a curse hanging over his head. And that curse says in verse 13, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him but you will surely fall the fall before him. His wife said that. His friends said that. Pagans, everyone. The wise men said that. Just like the high priest in Jesus' day uttered a word for God when he said, it is expedient that one man die for the whole nation, even though he was not a believer. And now the unbelieving friends of Haman are uttering words of God that are going to come true. 
So remember that he showed up early to the palace to initiate this murder of Mordecai. It didn't work. In the meantime, he did not realize the king had had a, a, a time last night when he couldn't sleep, and he had some stuff read to him, and he wouldn't even let him make his request. Haman wants to murder Mordecai and put him in the grave, and Xerxes that morning wants to glorify Mordecai for what he did. So instead of killing Mordecai, he will spend the morning parading his enemy around the city, telling people that this is a man the king really loves and cherishes, and this is the way, the way he treats people that he wants to cherish. And the king has him do it as one of the greatest nobles of, of his kingdom, Haman. And he's out taking his enemy walking around. <laughs> Remember when God said, oh, really? That's your plan, Haman? That's what you're going to do? Really? You're not in control. I am. You don't, you don't pull the shots. You don't pull the strings. I do. And he never would have dreamed, in his wildest dreams, that he'd be parading his enemy around town, talking about what a great man he is. And he went home and he, he cried again to Zeresh and the wise men, supposed wise men, and they speak a curse that he is under. And while they are talking, the king's eunuchs come to get him for the banquet. Remember, this is the second banquet that Esther is throwing. And they tell him, hurry up. What you find out is that everything is happening to him so fast, he can't get a word in about what his will is. Haman doesn't even have a chance to say, I want Mordecai hung on an impaling pole. Now they say, hey, it's time for the banquet. Hurry up, get there. Nothing is happening according to Haman's agenda. Someone else's agenda is happening. Even though it looks like Haman is going to succeed at times, even though it looks like he's in charge, he is not. He is caught in something that he cannot and he will not escape. Why? Because he's not in charge. Because the God of the Jews is in charge. And I want to keep reminding us of this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 232-39 because it's still appropriate for today and days to come. He says, God speaking, see now that I, I am he. All right? If there's any big man on campus, it's God. It's not Haman. He goes on to say, and there is no God besides me. Haman worshiped other gods. They are nothing compared to the God of the Jews. He goes on to say, it is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. Get this. And there is no one, no one, who can deliver from my hand. Isaiah 43, 13, Lamentation 3, 38, and Proverbs 21, uh, verse 30, all say the same thing. You're not in charge. This is not about you. It's about God. It's about what he wants. And I wonder if he is still thinking that he's BMOC, big man on campus. Ahasuerus asked two things again of Esther that day. They're at the banquet. He hurried up. He got there. The eunuchs made sure he was there. They're eating. There are other people in the room, mostly the eunuchs, who serve the king. And Ahasuerus, in front of everybody, asked Esther, okay, look, I wanted you to tell me yesterday what you wanted. You didn't do it. Tell me today, and I promise you, even up to half my kingdom, it will be done. So just, just go ahead and ask. He asks what Hadassah's petition is and her request. So he's asking for two things. What are you petitioning me for and what do you want? 
She had promised to tell him today at the second banquet, so she does. He again encourages her that whatever she wants, he is going to give it to her. Now, notice Esther in verse 3. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, okay, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my possession and my people as my request. I think in all of his wildest dreams, he never thought he was going to hear that today at the banquet. What? What are you talking about, your life? You're the queen, and I'm the king. Nobody can touch you. Nobody can harm you. What, what do you mean? I just can't believe this guy is so naive. He doesn't even know the nationality of his wife. I'm sure when you got married, you checked that out before you asked your wife to marry you. What nationality are you? I got to know. All right? Esther gives a petition and her request after appealing to the king on a personal level. She never becomes prideful. She never exerts hubris like Haman did. It's all still up to the king. There's a lesson in that. And the lesson is, when you, when you treat the king with humility and leave it to the king, then a good thing is going to happen. It's meant to be about our relationship with the king of kings. Esther gives her petition. She basically asks her husband Xerxes, have I found favor in your sight? Everybody knows she has. She's found favor in everybody's sight. Her request and petition are on the basis of what pleases him, not her. That's why she's going to say something we're going to think is pretty bizarre. And why would you do that? But she's going to do it because of respect for her husband, who, by the way, cheats on her and is an adulterer throughout her whole marriage. He's got a whole harem of women. He just takes whatever he wants. And yet she's faithful and loving and respectful. Her petition is that the king spare her life personally, and her request is that her people also be saved from death. The king seems to be a, genuinely caught off guard, right? not knowing what she is talking about. And now Haman, I can imagine him sitting, sitting there, he's at the table, he's reclining, you know, we're drinking and we're, we're having a good meal, and the only thing that's wrong in his life is that Mordecai is still breathing, and, and he wishes that was taken care of, but... He's having a banquet with the king and queen. He's a pretty important guy. You know, you know, that's not good enough for him. And when he hears this, I can't imagine what was going on inside of him. He probably opened his eyes and said, Are you kidding me? I, the queen is a Jew? He didn't see that coming. Nobody did. Now we know why Mordecai wouldn't let her tell anybody who she was. Even though Mordecai didn't know that that's why he was doing this, it's all worked out in God's plan. And here we are. The king is starting to figure out who his wife is. And so she fills him in in verse 4. For we have been sold 750,000 uh, shekels of silver worth. I and my people. Now if there's any doubt what nationality she is, it's all melting away. Now, we want to talk about what she said there. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. So, if you hold that place in your Bible and you turn to John, chapter 10, this is the passage on the Good Shepherd. And verse 10, Jesus Christ himself said the thief, that's another word for Satan, 
the devil. The thief comes only, and I want you to focus on that, only. Satan only has one, one method of doing things. He only has one goal. And that goal is to steal and kill and destroy. Kill, steal, and destroy. Hadassah notices he's, that they have been scheduled for to be, to be destroyed, to be killed, and annihilated, wiped off the face of the earth. And what I'm trying to say is, what she's saying is that this has the earmarks of the enemy. This is what the enemy does. He kills, he steals, he destroys, he annihilates. He doesn't do anything else. That's all he's for. Does he make friends with people? Yes. Does he let people manipulate his power to get what they want? Yes. But only so he can destroy them. And so this is where we can, we can say for sure in the book, this is Satan's doing behind a man who gave himself to Satan. And that man's name was Haman. Now, she says something that, that rattles our cage a little bit. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. And some of us would say, are you kidding? You're saying that if you were about to be enslaved, you and all your people, you wouldn't have even brought it up to the king? Because she said it's not commensurate? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be on the level that a king needs to deal with? With us, that'd be a huge deal. That would be unbelievable. Say, yes, we're going to fight so we don't have to be slaves. Yes, we're going to give our lives for that cause. And Hadassah doesn't do that. We need to ask ourselves why. And the answer is there are battles worth fighting and battles not worth fighting. And as, and as a believer, she doesn't want to fight that one. But the one about death, she will fight to the death. And that's the decision that she made. She wants Xerxes to know that if the news were just about slavery for her and her people, she would not have bothered the king. She would have just accepted it. But it's not. It's about the very life of the men and women who are Jews and their children. She wants Xerxes to know that. Ahasuerus is still catching up. Now he wants to know who is the one doing this thing. Now remember, they're all laying on their couches eating. I don't know where Haman was, but I can just imagine Hester, maybe across the table, I don't know, pointing and saying, this is the evil guy. This is the evil one. This is the wicked one who is doing it. Now, this banquet is not turning out for anybody but Esther the way it's supposed to go. And that's important. Ahasuerus is catching up. He's catching up quick. Hadassah has started the ball rolling, but what is next takes all of her faith in God and faith in her courage in God because she said it. Can you imagine what you'd be feeling like inside if you knew this is it? I don't know how this is going to go. This is a guy the king likes. He's elevated him to immense power, gave him power to kill an entire group of people. What's going to happen? And so she's saying, well, if I've found favor... If you really love me, then here's my petition. She knew she could be killed because of what she did. And imagine the courage it would take, the faith in God, to say to this king, this is the man who did it. Your best buddy, your friend, the one you've been elevating over and over above everybody else. Uh, I think this is the way we should look at situations. Alan Redpath is a lexographer, but also a great pastor from the early 1900s. And I'm quoting him here, he said this, There is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until first of all it has gone past God and past Christ, right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, 
which I may not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to be, I'm sorry, but as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to him, meaning Christ, and accept it is coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, no circumstance, excuse me, no circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. Well, what is your Lord? He's the sovereign God in control of all things. In verse 6, Queen Esther identifies the enemy and the foe of her and her people. It's Haman. The immediate response inside Haman was to become completely overwhelmed and terrified. Have, have you ever been caught doing something that is wrong and it's pointed out in public and what you feel inside? Oh, you're terrified, you're embarrassed, you all those feelings flood in. Well, this man is scared to death, literally. And what that revelation felt like was it made him feel terrible inside. I've been caught, I've been trapped, I'm in trouble. Beware, Numbers, Numbers 32, 23 says, your sins will find you out. God will make sure you cannot hide your sin. You cannot keep it private. God will reveal it. And Haman, it's revealed now in front of the most powerful man on earth, and you attack his wife, and he loves her. And buddy, you're in trouble. At that point, he realized that he may as well have just eaten his last meal. All of a sudden, Mr. Hubris is humble and begging. Verses 7 to 10. Those who intend to harm fail to take into account the power of God. And if there's one thing we need to remember in our life here today is the power of God. Do you understand the power of the living God? Verse 7, Xerxes in anger, and that, that's really not what's going on there. The Hebrew word talks about a heat of rage. It is an Arabic word in its, in its uh, uh, cognate form, meaning poison. His anger is described as great poison. And he exits to the garden to try to get himself under control. That action of the king itself, Haman knows, spells disaster for him. This is the fall of the wise men and that Zeresh has decreed by God and his leading. It is happening now. Apparently, God is in control. And Haman is just now figuring that out too late. Haman stays in the palace near Queen Esther to beg for his life. He knows he's going to be killed if something doesn't happen. In verse 8, possibly Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was to do his begging and pleading. Remember, she's still uh, laid out on that couch for the meal. And he falls on that couch. I don't, I'm not saying he fell on or anything, but he just fell on the couch in, in some way. And uh, the law of the land was, even though he's there to beg and plead for his life, the law of the land was a man didn't care who, who, who it is except the king. It doesn't matter who you are. A man is never to align himself within seven feet, using our terminology, seven feet within the queen's distance or any of the, of the women that belong to the king's harem. Seven feet. Now, we have a law in some places. You see the X's on the floor. Six feet distance. Seven feet is what you can get from the queen. He's falling on her couch. Ahasuerus, based on what he sees when he comes back in, interprets this action. Haman is trying to violate the queen while I'm still in the palace. Holy moly. He's upset. 
The Aramaic Targum suggests that the angel Gabriel pushed Haman on the couch. <laughs> you know, if you'd see this stuff in real life, it'd be great. Huh? Pushed Haman on the couch just at the right time. Now, there is no evidence for that. The text doesn't say that. But good angels are involved in manipulating the events of life to make sure they end up where God wants them to end up. Uh, it, it could have happened, but it doesn't say that, so we're not going to die for that. But it did happen at the right time. There he is, falling on her couch. King walks back in. The servants of the king, who were present, that's the word they there in verse 8, covered Haman's face. Why? Because he's condemned to death. That's why. We assume that Haman is present. Is present. To hear this conversation, he's just got a covering over his head about the plans for his execution. I love to hear Harbona speaks up. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, had been in the room. He said, Behold, and by the way, I've taught you that the word behold in the Old Testament text means listen up, God is doing it. He's doing some work you need to pay attention to. He is doing something. Pay attention. Behold, indeed. The impaling pole standing at Haman's house, 75 feet tall, which Haman made for Mordecai, that's the key word there, who spoke good on behalf of the king. The king knows that. He just heard it that, that morning. And the king said, hang him on. No hesitation. No begging. Hang him on. The pit that he dug, he's fallen into. The rock that he rolled up the hill has rolled back on him. The pole that he made for Mordecai is now his. Arbona speaks up. The impaling pole is ready, but now it's ready for Haman. By the way, it's at his house. I wonder what Zeresh thought of her husband hanging on the pole in the backyard. Apparently, there were more people in Susa who had no use for Haman or his hubris. There's a lot of enemies of this man. And this guy speaks up right away. Hey, I know just the thing you can do, king. There's a pole ready to go. And the king hangs him on By Xerxes' command, the impaling pole meant for Mordecai is not to be. In verse 10, now Haman is impaled on a pole that was not built for him. That was God's plan, not Haman's. God always has his way, no matter our intentions, whatever they be. We must bow to what God's intentions are. We must bow to the plan of the king. The king's white-hot anger, then the text says, subsides. And God has saved his people. And God has saved his Messiah. Now, it's not done yet, but it's going to be amazing how that happens and how God intervenes and uses the very man that Haman wanted to kill to lead the Persian nation to protect the people of God. So, some things we can learn other than what we've already mentioned. Number one, as children of God, we must speak out in order to stop evil and wickedness. We are opposed to evil and wickedness. Secondly, Dr. Schmutzer, you can say that too, said that if standing up were easy, we would never use the word hero. That's not easy. Stand up for the right thing. Stand 
Thank you. 